Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listen in, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with actor Patterson Joseph. I'm on a mission to help you unlock your creativity. I'm sharing my journey as a musician, actor and writer, as well as offering online content like guitar and songwriting tutorials and chat about creativity. I'm doing this because I know how important creativity is for mental health and I believe everyone has a creative spirit. I want to help you find yours. Join me at robertlaymusic.co.uk and on social media as Robert Lane Music. Thank you. Hi, Patterson. How are you? I'm good, Robert. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. I believe... Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to come across as Joey from Friends. But how are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm great, thank you very much. It had a similar good. effect on me, so that's okay, as it would from Joey from Friends. <laughs> but that's fine. And we're, we're after any excitement we can get these days when we can't leave the house. Oh, so my good. God, yeah. <laughs> Desperate. How has that side of things been for you then? I think you've been filming recently, but how has the whole world of filming and stuff been over the past few months? Yeah, well, it's all ground to a halt from uh, mid-March, of course, when everybody else um, was either furloughed or was trying to work from home. And since uh, we were doing a drama set on a nuclear submarine, it wasn't that easy to work from home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, we had a, well, several weeks, uh, almost two months, maybe more, hiatus, April, May, June, no longer, three months. And we uh, started again end of August, perhaps. Uh, And I've just finished last Monday, my final Tuesday, last my final scenes, and drove back down from Glasgow. So it's been okay, knowing that you've got work ahead. Mm. Um, But as of last Tuesday, I'm officially unemployed. Which it's not. I haven't done that for a while, so I feel very um, sort of privileged that it's the first time it's happened to me in uh, decades. That's really interesting. Employment is part of the game, um, but if you're lucky enough, like ouch, like me, to um, be as successful as I've been, getting one job after another, it becomes unusual. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's actually the, the run of the mill. That's actually how we how we work as actors: unemployment, employment. Mm. And I don't just mean turning things down all the time. I mean nothing coming in and uh, a bit of a silent period. So yeah, it's it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I think it's always good to get hungry again with the proviso that you don't lose confidence in yourself. Mm. Getting another job, which I, I should hope so. And will it give you an opportunity to try some different things then? So, like, one thing I was quite interested in was the fact that you'd written the one-man show um, about Sancho in the last five years, which was that a first time writing something or had there been projects that you'd written before? And would this be an opportunity to do some more of that kind of stuff? That's a good question. Um, I've always tried to write uh, ever since I started acting when I was about 18. Mm. And I would write sketches and we'd write things for our improv groups. But it wasn't until um, probably drama school when I had to do certain projects that I began to say, I would like to do both. I'd like to be a writer and an actor, but I didn't know anybody who could do the the two things. Of course, there are, Mm -hmm. there were, but I didn't know them. 
So I decided to leave it thinking, let me just concentrate on the acting side of things. And, it, and then uh, in, in the roundabout sort of 99, I began to look for um, projects that I could practice at least writing about. Um, and the historical idea that there were, were black people in England before 1948 and the famous Windrush generation, my parents' generation came, it always fascinated me um, because I wondered how those people lived and how they were seen and how normal was it and how even how abnormal was it and i began to research and this character popped up in the middle of the 18th century called charles ignatius sancho who was a shopkeeper when he died mm. uh, at the age of 51 by which time he had been a slave had run away from the spinsters who looked after him in greenwich been sort of semi-adopted by the duke of montague one of the members of the royal sort of retinue and then wrote loads of music, became a great friend of David Garrick, you know, one of the most famous actors mm. of his day, was painted by Thomas Gainsborough and was the first black man to vote. And it was like there was so much about Sancho that was full of its own colour mm. um, that I sort of latched onto him as a character and have now done two versions of the monodrama, as we call them now, <laughs> uh, and then uh, um, and then just finished a novel during lockdown. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Is that on the Sancho project as well, or is that a different? Yeah, it's all linked. Uh, yes, I sort of never feel, I feel like I've never stopped writing about him since I started in sort of 99, 2000. But yes, wow. this feels like a very big full circle now that the novel is written. I felt like there was no one place you could go to to hear his story, that it was all fragments. Everybody knew a little bit about this and that mm. of his life, but there was no sort of Oliver Twist, no David <laughs> Copperfield. Uh, so that's what I've, I've rather grandly <laughs> gone for um, in my uh, The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho, Volume 1. <laughs> and how amazing that <laughs> such, a, such a great story and an important story just isn't isn't known very widely. And there's not is there not been other dramatic works about him in the past? Is, I think there's been biographies perhaps, but nothing on a kind of artistic front. No, there's been neither biographies nor um, oh, okay. any... Uh, any um full uh, characters drawn that are that are like him and there are some contemporaneous ones that used uh figures like sancho or use him as a kind of blueprint but no one's actually written on him mm. uh, which is just i just found that uh uh just a, a, a missing piece of work a missing piece of british literature so I, I set out to write it in as close to the idiom as possible, this 18th century language, mm. as possible without it making it incomprehensible. <laughs> um, and uh, hopefully uh, somebody will buy it and publish it and somebody else will make a TV series out of it. Fantastic. And is there an yeah. element of making work that you can be involved in when, or how can I put that, making stuff that you can act in <laughs> when maybe those things aren't there? <laughs> Um, yes and no. I mean, I think I would have done it anyway, whatever my ethnicity. Um, the fact that uh, it's pretty clear that um, anybody's career is affected by what they look like. Mm. I, I think certainly being a, a black person, um, as well as everything else, you know, my age, what I sound like, everything else, um, will also put you in a certain box. And, uh, you know, you just accept that. But so it's not driven by unemployment and it's not driven by uh, a frustration actually necessarily 
it might have been initially but actually i've I've played so many different parts it's not as if i'm dying to play this one mm. kind of role it's actually just about a deeper question of belonging and so sancho's story is about belonging my kind of story i suppose is about belonging do i belong in the rsc do i belong as a television actor am i an interactor am i a writer am i an activist of some mm. kind you know so sancho's story and mine kind of mirror each other in that way so that's kind of why i'm obsessed with it much more than the black history thing or i want a part that's like mm. i'm looking for those stories that make me feel that sort of excite me and also have the effect of telling me a bit about history that i don't know mm. And, yeah. and and from there, a 20-year project, it's really fascinating, isn't it, the way those things can just become such an important part of what we, of what we do. Yeah, and it's curious how it becomes more your life than it was or than you imagined it to be when you started. I remember reading the first draft uh, many years ago at the National Theatre Studio, and uh, a friend of mine said, oh, it's very autobiographical, to which I really got my back up. Mm. Like, what do you mean? I mean, he's an 18th century man. I'm 20th century. What are you talking about? He's works with a royal family. What's what's that all about? He's a grocer. It's got nothing to do with me. <laughs> and it wasn't until you know gradually when I my back went down <laughs> that I actually felt no. We always put our, a bit of ourselves in our work, and the more I do Sancho, the more of me I can see in him, mm. um, which is I think a sort of natural thing. So yeah, it's been. It's been a, a long old journey. I'm ready to to leave him for a bit and go on to somebody else mm. who I've got in mind. But I'm uh, I've been happy to sort of share <laughs> sort of share my life because my well, my email address and my uh, Twitter handle and everything is Ignatius Sancho. And so every now and then somebody points it out, and I haven't even noticed. You know, he's uh-huh. become so, so synonymous with with my life, really. And comparing them, you, you said you, you, we always bring parts of ourselves from your project that we work on. Compared to something that you've written, all those acting parts that you've done when you're bringing your own thing to them, an actor doesn't have a certain amount of control with that, I guess, because they haven't written it, they haven't cast it. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Is Have you been consciously aware of bringing yourself to things, that you changing yourself as much as possible to meet the parts, and it's only afterwards that you realise, oh, I brought so-and-so to that without realising. Yeah, I mean, I think it's much more the latter. It's much less magical than the, the former, and much <laughs> less scientific scientific than the idea that, oh, I'll use this bit of myself. Mm. Uh, no, I think what, what, what tends to happen, actually, a little bit like um, they do in Lecoq uh, School of, you know, of performance you know there's there's the clown who doesn't know they're a clown who doesn't know what it is that's actually funny about them do you see what i mean yes, they, yeah. they think they think that the thing that makes them strong is the thing that makes them strong but it's what makes people fit, think that they're hilarious and so there is a kind of blindness to what we do mm-hmm. even in dramatic roles there's a sort of blindness to the fact that we're giving off that thing you know, we don't think we're giving off that thing, but we are giving off that thing, even though we think we're playing. So, <laughs> so to not to be overcomplicated, but I think someone like Johnson, for example, is a character that I wouldn't have been able to create on my own mm. because I didn't have the component parts of his place in life, um, the language he spoke, <laughs> and uh, the way he, the way he presented himself to the world, and third personed himself in that way, <laughs> and 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 I felt like I I can't. I wouldn't have been able to find myself in that. But there are aspects of Johnson that are absolutely 
from my life, you know, <laughs> things I've ever seen or things I've done that I'm embarrassed about. Uh, and also that level of grumpy, that level of constantly everybody's about to fuck you off <laughs> in one way or another. Um, that's quite a character to tune in on. But that is part of me. But I wouldn't say I put that in there. He was just there. Mm. And so, I, you know, you use whatever you have. And I, don't, I can't think of any parts, Kamal Hadley and Noughts and Crosses recently, where I purposefully said I will use this part of me. Because there were parts of him that I um, was totally surprised by. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but mm. there's a moment of confession when he talks to the, um, the Nort boy, um, mm. Callum, who is white, about not having a mixed relationship. Because it, in the end, the other person will start to feel resentful about what you've taken from them. Mm. by having this relationship and it's, it was such a kind of deep thing that rather than being this being sort of some machiavellian character who's always trying to pull strings i suddenly thought well i can use an open part of me that can talk about these things in in, in, in sort of negative ways but can talk about them as a human being and that gave a humanity to kamal that i wouldn't have had and that is me um, mm. because they've written uh, not a two-dimensional character but certainly one that didn't have that dimension necessarily because it was game playing. But um, yeah, that, that's the kind of thing that happens organically. And then you can look back and say, that part of me is is definitely a, you know part of that character. Mm. Yeah. And what's interesting with that, of course, is that all people are, are the heroes of their own stories and really evil people even don't, I guess some of them know they're evil, but they, they think they're right and they think they're acting in a way that they can justify in their own mind. So, you know, yeah. even the politicians and stuff that we see and we can't believe the things that they say, I guess at some level in their mind, they're, that's coming from a point of truth for them. So it's, yeah. it's always interesting how that works as characters, I think. Yeah, and I think that's what we are meant to do, uh, quite rightly, which is find our own empathy, sympathy with the character, regardless mm. of their actions. So that if we take what you've just said, Robert, and say, you know, we're all the hero, heroine of our own stories, mm. then if you were playing Hitler, as Bruno Gantz did so brilliantly in Downfall, mm. um, you've got to find a way at which, however aware or not aware he is of self, that the person feels at least a, a semi-contented with who they are and their actions. Mm. That if, if they are struggling with something, then they struggle with it because they've got another half of their conscience. They're not just doing it like an automaton. Mm. You know? So that there is an interesting thing about how, how much can you empathize with a character that is so em unempathetic. You don't want people to feel sympathy for, for Hitler, as in, yeah, so I see his point of view. You don't really mm. want that. At the same time, neither do you want it to be a cardboard cutout. You want humanity to be in there because it's more horrifying in some ways, actually. Yes, and more say that he was just, yeah, that he was just a human being. Then I have to deal with something in myself, yeah, because I'm watching a proper human being as opposed to going, it's Cruella Deville. It's a two, you know, it's a two-dimensional story. But if she suddenly starts talking about child loss <laughs> in a mm. scene, you know, they suddenly start so having scenes about all the children that she's lost to birth or whatever. Then you suddenly go, oh, okay. Now I'm slightly compromised, thinking this woman needs help rather than jailing, you know, yeah. forever. So, so there is an interesting thing, a correlation between you know a character's humanity, how much of yourself, your own humanity, you can bring to it, knowing yourself enough, of course, mm. to know what that is and not to lose yourself within it, which is what the book um, Julius Caesar and Me is all about. You know, debriefing and mm. and not 
uh, getting lost in the part. So once you've got that, I, I do think that acting is one of the most interesting, um, almost uh, sciences, because it's about the psychology of, of behavior mm. um, and human behavior. And it's across the range of human behavior, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you really do investigate a lot of people when you're an actor. I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation at this point, but I wondered if I could ask if you might possibly consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it, and writing a review on your favourite podcast provider. Doing these wonderful things encourages the all-powerful algorithms to push the podcast to new people. It's also helpful when I'm talking to potential future guests, as it shows that people are listening. Thank you. Why do I always have to be the one who arranges? And talking of human behavior, those characters that you've mentioned that become very recognizable. <laughs> and I guess, I don't know, I don't want to talk for you, but I'd imagine a character like Johnson, there'll be some element yeah. of that character being so real <laughs> in a program that's so loved and, you know, has, has been around for so long as well, where yeah. people think, that is you <laughs> some yeah. level. and or, or that must be a very <laughs> real part of you and when they encounter you are they expecting johnson how how is that when the character isn't really what you like at all or or you know is that a um, strange thing to encounter no i mean because i don't really recognize myself um in any of the characters i've ever played i really don't i mean the closest is the guy i've just played in this um submarine drama the commander of the submarine mm. because He's literally, I mean, metaphorically out of his depth. <laughs> he really does. Get, he get, he gets absolutely flummoxed by the amount of shit that goes on on this one patrol, um, and we find out later why. But it, it's he's he looks so bowed down. He looks tired, undergroomed. You know, he's kind of got a kind of tired, sardonic take to life, and he's buried at the bottom of all this water, and shit's happening to him, and he can't deal with it. And and honestly that's as close to me <laughs> at the dark times of my life as I think I've ever played any character. Uh, but none of them, no, none of them sort of relate to me. So no, I don't feel that when people come up to me and say, Oh, Johnson, Oh my God, we really love Johnson. It's so clear to them how un-Johnson I am. Yes. Mainly by the fact that I welcome them. <laughs> that's the first, <laughs> first giveaway. <laughs> Are they disappointed that I, you're not a complete arsehole yeah, to them? Maybe I, Exactly. It's almost like, you know, Hey, give us one of your lines. Like, <laughs> I've always, and from the very beginning, I've said, listen, actors, <laughs> terrible. Like it's, we hear it. We learn it, we do it, and then we forget it. Yeah, especially television lines. I can I can tell you some Shakespeare lines. Yeah, because they really stuck in. But honestly, I can't remember a word. I mean, it's only people reminding me. You know, is that normal pooing you're doing, Mark? That I go, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember saying that. I remember saying that. You know, watch television if you have to. <laughs> watch a watch porn. Watch a chicken fucking horse. Whatever. <laughs> I think the people who invented Google sat around watching Trumpton. None of those lines would have come to me if somebody hadn't recently reminded me of all of them, you know? Yeah. Because we just get them. Um, so I don't feel part of my characters. I really do, don't. I really feel that they're separate entities entirely. Mm. Uh, that's an interesting point, actually. I've, I've always wondered about with people who've been in things that are that, that loved. <laughs> when you were doing Peach yeah. to begin with, did you know it was going to be something a bit special? Was it? Was, no, it, was it another gig, basically? Well, it was definitely another gig, but it was 
one of my first, if not my first comedy gig, because then if you know, there's a sort of demarcation line mm. between serious actors, drama actors, yeah. and comedy actors. Comedy yeah. actors can cross over much more readily, um, even though they have to be damn good to be really, truly taken seriously. Okay. Um, um, they really do. They have to be exceptionally good um, to be taken seriously because you're always looking for that comedy quirk, the thing that makes them funny. Mm. And when they're not doing it, it can denude them of their personality. So you're not really getting anything out of it mm-hmm. as a viewer or as a producer or whatever. You're not getting them doing something extraordinary. You're just getting them doing less of the thing that makes them special. Mm-hmm. So uh, that way it can work though, you know, comedy to, you know, look at Robin Williams, you know, mm-hmm. comedy to drama. Um, and um, it doesn't really work the other way very well. Um, and not a lot of serious actors, with the exception of Leslie Nielsen, of course, and mm-hmm. always, um, who can be an absolute icon of serious dramatic acting. And then you put him in a comedy and they're killing it just simply by their ability to their timing, but also th- their ability to keep within it mm-hmm. and be truthful. And, you know, so I've always felt very lucky about that, being able to, to do that. So t- when, when I got on the set of Peep Show, it wasn't with any um, idea about what was happening in British comedy, you know, what was needed, what, you know, we were at the vanguard or something new, none of those things. It was just what we've got to put these cameras on our head, what we can't <laughs> talk to the actor opposite us, what we've got to look down the lens what, all the time, not all the time, all the time. Oh God. So, you know, there were lots of things to adjust to technically. Yes. And, and so the scenes didn't really, you know, you read them like proper scenes and you sort of acted them out like proper scenes. And then you put all the gear on. And the other person disappears behind the camera talking their lines, but you can't look at them. And suddenly you're in a technical exercise. You're not really in a a scene anymore. You know what the scene is because it's in your head because you did it properly a little while ago. But you're not doing that now. You're doing a a version of it to accommodate what the camera needs. Mm. Uh, And, you know, they've got a cameraman, his hand is on your head, moving you because you are the, you know, the tripod moving you around so this head cam can see david or rob you know and then when you eat you've got to lift it towards your forehead so the camera can catch it and then down past your eyes onto the i mean it's like you're not thinking about oh is this a funny line so when it finished when we finished filming it i, I was like i don't i mean i kind of got the, his slime i kind of got the joke about the beam and bmw and the gloves I got. I definitely got the the first twist, which is you think you're getting a motivational speaker uh, who's being awful, who's mm. just being nasty, and then he turns and he's all sweetness and pie, and that's how we do it, you know. And that I like that switch guy, you know. And I I thought it'd be nice if he sometimes had a charm, a real charm about him, mm. and then and then some sort of demonic, um, filthy swearing evil guy can pop out you know mm. so johnson was johnson was just like a gift of a character <laughs> as well as um a surprise to me that i was doing comedy because at the same time i think a month or so later i got green wing so i was doing these two rather iconic actually now i think about them naughty's shows yes absolutely and um and i and i really i was bemused throughout much much of my time on green wing <laughs> um, in the, Very, uh, the, char- the character you see is me bemused about <laughs> what the fuck is going on and what is funny about this. Why is this man naked in my office? Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. 
I don't know what to do about this. And that's what my face does the whole time. Like, I don't know how to even react to this. That's so cool. And the converse of that is, is it happening the way around where you're doing something, you're thinking, this is going to, this is great stuff. This is, and then, you know, it's just a great show. Mm-hmm. And then the reaction just isn't quite what you would have expected. Yeah. Babylon, I think, was one of those, mm. um, which was written by Sam and Jesse, who, who write Picture, of course. Um, and what was extraordinary about that one was Danny Boyle was directing it. Wow. Um, Jimmy Nesbitt was our main star. <laughs> I had uh, Nicola Walker as my sort of rival copper trying to get to the top. Mm-hmm. I mean, we couldn't have had, in my opinion, a better setup. And then it just didn't work. It, like, the chemistry of everything just didn't work. Mm. Somehow there was a disjoint, I think, between the producers and the, and the other creatives in the team. And um, and there just didn't seem to be a sort of consistency of model. This is what we're going for. So I think potentially, even as you were shooting it, you thought this is this is good. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how its public's going to either love it or or loathe it. And it turned out that they were fairly indifferent to it, unfortunately. And I think it was just it didn't quite sing off the page in the way that it read on the page. Mm-hmm. And when we were doing the read-throughs, it all did seem very coherent and funny and and dark. But then it just, I don't know, lost its mojo somehow mm. on screen. It's difficult to uh, to assess. But yeah, those one of those things we just disappointed. You know, oh, well, I didn't expect it to go out with a whimper like that. I thought it would make some sort of splash. Mm. It's interesting. And, you know, something like Trust Creators is, would you be able to put a number on the percentage of things you've done that, that worked in that way or hit home do you know what i mean like i've spoken to writers and they've surprised me where they've said like i said what percentage of stuff you've written has never really been seen by anyone and one guy said 90 and he's like what (laughs) it's incredible yeah Yeah, though i've said that's true i mean i would say of the things that in rehearsals and the build up to them felt like this is really damn good and then didn't come off is probably 60 percent of the time Mm that's how it is maybe more actually in a bad year but it doesn't mean that they're bad things or they don't come out or whatever it just means i really thought this was going to make a bigger splash than it did timeless the tv series timeless is one of those for me a really clever setup yes there were some things that were a little bit soap opera about it but it's trawl through history and finding all these incredible women and you know ethnic minorities who were prominent but disappeared from the record books was right up my alley and it was done really well in that sort of american tv series way and yet it didn't really make a much of a splash here and i'm not sure you know that it made a bit of a splash in america but you know extraordinary to me Hmm. and yet other things that you think of we don't know about this one god knows whether this is gonna like peep show don't know what people are going to make of this suddenly you're doing it you know 13 years later doing your ninth season Mm. And so would the the message from that be just make stuff because you never know. Yeah, what's absolutely. No, that's that's a real, that's a really good nutshell. Make <laughs> stuff and uh, just trust. Just do your best in it, you know, and trust that that it'll uh, have its place. And it might be years later. Actually, some mm-hmm. things find their their place. They're, they're ahead of their time, and they'll they'll find their place later. 
Which leads me on to a question I like to ask people. What is your definition of success of a thing that you've made? Um, I would say when the intent matches the effect. Mm. Because sometimes what can happen between your intent, having written it, or your intent when you first get the script and the intent of everybody about it, is that there are so many uh, collaborators in putting something, particularly on screen, that by the time you get to, to put things on screen, things have changed so much. Oh, we wanted to make that lead character a man. Oh, could we make that other person um, uh, a black person? Oh, could we make that other person, mm. um, you know, whatever it is they think they need, the extra ingredient they need that they don't have. Oh, can we have a bit more romance between these two characters? So by the time you get the finished product, it's not what you wrote originally and it's not the intent that mm -hmm. you had originally. I think you, me, and the apocalypse is a good example of that where the story was about these twins and the story was brilliant about the two twins played by Matthew Bainton. But because we had big American actors in it, mm. NBC wanted more of them clearly. And it skewed the script towards them. It doesn't mean it was bad. It just wasn't what was the original intent, which was the story of two men who were the same, but very different at the end of the world. What's, what would they do? Mm. You know, mm. um, as opposed to the story of a priest, you know, Rob Lowe, and breaking his vows potentially, but it's like that, that's, that wasn't the point of the story. So that I'm, I always think something's successful if it does the thing that you asked it of, to, you know, early on. Mm -hmm. And I think my one, that one, my monodrama, could I call it that? My monodrama, you know, Sancho and Active Remembrance is a case in point. Um, I've just been offered a, you know, a London venue for next year, early next year and might wait till spring. Mm. And that's, this is a thing I, I started writing in 2003, properly, maybe 2004. And it's had, it's had all the lives that I needed it to have. I needed it to have a life outside of this country so that I could talk about black British history outside mm. of this country because so few people know that there is one. Mm. And to play at the Kennedy Center and, you know, in Austin, Texas, in Philadelphia, in, in um, Pennsylvania, in, in, um, uh, you know, all over, actually all over America. Um, and I feel like there's there's something about doing a show that has life both at home and abroad mm. that tells about the history of Black Britain, that, that that was my intent when I wrote it, when I began to write it, but I didn't think it would have as international uh, a success as it did, or at least certainly transatlantic success as it has done. Um so yeah, that that would that what I would call that success from intent to delivery and its effect being the same mm -hmm. or more. And sometimes I guess things like that being set, you know, however many hundred years in the past, they can talk about the present in a way that a contemporary drama might not. Or does that sound like bollocks? I don't know. But, but I'm wondering whether no, that's whether no, no, that's, that's why it's had a, yeah. a bit of a home in the states as well. It's because it's this it's a similar history, but it's looking at it at a remove, which allows people to think of it in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And um, but uh, but yet, of course, the best way for that to happen is for people not to be blind to that, but to actually mm. hear the resonance, you know, because it can be done in such a way so subtly that people are just watching something that is at a remove and they don't need to engage with it. But when it then touches on their times 
or even the way they live, then it becomes super powerful because they've opened themselves up. And the case in point was the first time I opened the Kennedy Center in Washington. And it was a group of like 400 odd, uh, mainly children, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, it went down really well. I didn't think they would be quiet, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I sort of talked to them right at the beginning and allowed them to talk. And after they'd done that, they were cool. And then uh, right at the end, when I was doing my Q&A, two questions came up. Well, first of all, I said, you know, does anybody know of this black British history before today? And only four people in that entire auditorium, all of them adults, put their hand up. Mm. Um, so it's extraordinary to me that, that there's a because he wouldn't ask that of pupils in England. Did you know that there was an African American um, community in America? Mm. Of course they'd know because mm. there's Will Smith and there's you know Jamie Fox and Beyonce and Jay Z and you know whereas they didn't know anything. These kids, nothing. Mm. Um, and then uh, and then these four. African-American ladies, well over 80, got up and said, uh, Sonny, this is not history. This is happening today. When you go searching for your papers in the play, that's us now. Mm. We're being shut out. Black people are being disenfranchised for not having a driving license or for not having a passport, and they're not being able to vote. And this is what's happening today. So your, your play is not an old play. It's happening today. And that was the power of it, really, it is that even though it's set, set in uh, seventeen, the 1720s to the 1780s, it mm. is uh, today. It's, it's a piece about today. And that's how you can. Yeah, you're right. You can speak into people's times by taking them somewhere else. But you need also to point out the similarities mm. um, as well so that people don't escape thinking they just watched a kind of costume drama but with no substance for their own time, you know. Is this a good time for people to be marking a career as an actor or writer? And if there was one little nugget of advice you might give, what would it be? Um, I don't think any time is a good time. It's a really precarious road that you travel, but it's an exciting one if you can keep your eyes um, up and uh, don't get too beaten down by all the rejection, all the rejection that's coming your way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know what you're doing and you feel like you've got something to give, keep pers- persevering. If you're half-hearted about it, do do something else because it takes too much of you. Um, so those would be my bits of advice, really, um, today. If you ask me tomorrow, it'd be like, have fun. Yeah. <laughs> make, make balloon animals when you're unemployed. But um, <laughs> it, depends, it depends on the days we catch the actors, you know, and how, how we're doing. But I would say, you know, keep a really firm eye on, whether you're enjoying it, it's really important that you do because it's a tough time anyway. Yes. Every time you try to build a career in this, in, in our um, profession, really, uh, and let alone the time when there's a lot of um, theatres closing or dark. Yeah. Patson, that's great. Thank you so much. If people want to catch up with your no projects worries. and what you're up to, what's the best way to do that? You're pretty active on Twitter, I think. It might be the best way. Uh, fairly, yeah. I mean, I come and go. I'm having a a sabbatical for a little while but i am um, yeah if there's anything coming up like if i get the book published <clears throat> etc or if there's a tv program on um i'll um i'll ping um, i usually do yeah they usually ping messages up there cool just remind us of your twitter handle uh it's i think it's ignatius underscore sancho patson thank you so much for taking the time that was fascinating you're very very welcome robert
Cheers, Neil. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Join us next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast. Until then, please subscribe, rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects I'm working on. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.